0: Tuesday morning, an American Airlines Boeing 6, 767, loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel, crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. The impact left a gaping, burning hole near the 80th floor of the 110-story skyscraper, instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping hundreds more in higher floors. As the evacuation of the tower and its twin got underway, television cameras broadcasted live images of what initially appeared to be a freak accident. Then, 18 minutes after the first plane hit, a second Boeing 767, United Airlines Flight 7175, appeared out of the sky and turned sharply toward the World Trade Center and sliced into the South Tower near the 60th floor. The collision caused a massive explosion that showered burning debris over surrounding buildings and onto the streets below. It immediately became clear that America was under attack. You get a call from your sister that your niece has a rare tumor growing at the base of her skull that even the best-case scenario will result in months of chemotherapy and lasting physical setbacks. Uh, She won't have the normal childhood that every uncle, aunt, or mother would want for this child. You wake up in the middle of the night, and uh, you're scared of the dark (laughs) and uh, wonder what could be waiting for you outside as you just need to go to the restroom. Uh, You're worried about fitting in in school. Uh, what will my friends think of me at school, uh, what friends will I have, uh, these different fears. When nations come under attack, when tragedy strikes, to what or to whom uh, can we turn? And in the words of Dr. Jim from last week, if we were to take this as a test, we would all answer correctly. We can turn to God. And uh, But life is not just a test, a written test, multiple choice, but We actually have to live life. And often we do not live as if God really is the one that we turn to when we face those fears and those difficult circumstances. Why don't we turn to God? Uh, I don't think that it's a matter of just mental assent. You know, I know God is in control. Uh, because most of us know that, and uh, and that that's obviously not uh, that's not the key to trusting in God is just knowing it. But it's that we haven't tasted or seen the goodness of God. Uh, not too long ago, we had a banner in here right over here on this side uh, of Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I remember Pastor St. Lawrence's illustration of a Snickers bar. Uh, it would not be a sermon for Pastor St. Lawrence without talking about chocolate, right? <laughs> and so, check talked about chocolate, uh, but our affection and our delight should be in God. So the big idea for today, if you want to write this down, is this. Fear not, our God restores, reigns, and redeems. That's a nice alliteration. <laughs> Fear not, our God restores, reigns, and redeems. So to give some context to our, where we're at in scripture, Isaiah 44 uh the author is the prophet Isaiah, um, who began his ministry. We see the beginning of his ministry in Isaiah 6, the year that King Uzziah died. And he was a prophet during the reign of Hezekiah. And we see a lot of his interaction with Hezekiah in chapters 1 through 39. Then in chapter 40, uh there is a significant change in tone, and uh chapters 40 through 66. Uh is now written from the perspective of the Jews in exile in Babylon. So, just to give a little history timeline, Isaiah uh, is prophesying here that in the future Israel is going to go be taken captive by Assyria, and then in a hundred years Judah is going to be become captive and in exile in Babylon. Okay, so Isaiah is all the way over here. Then in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is writing from the perspective of this group right here. It's kind of weird as you read it. It Maybe I'm just saying this as you read it, it kind of helps give some clarity. Uh, He's like he's talking in present tense like they're in Babylon, uh, but it's actually written over 100 years ago. And so that's where we find ourselves. In chapter 40 and on, uh, chapters 40 through 66, uh, from 40 to the end of the chapter has been called for centuries the book of consolation, uh, the book of comfort. And it's rightly named this because even just in these first four chapters, uh, seven times God says to his people, fear not or do not fear. Uh, in fact, it is in this section that we get the line from how firm a foundation that has comforted many hurting souls for, uh, for decades Um, In Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's kind of hard not to sing that. (laughs) Fear not. So, uh, but the other passages here, the other fear not passages, 41, chapter 41, verses 13 and 14. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Verse 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. How would you like to be called a worm? (laughs) Uh, Actually, if you look at the context of that, he does use that worm to do some amazing things. But uh, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I'm going to keep reading this because this is a, that's such a sweet passage. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 5. Fear not. For I am with you, I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. And our last two fear-nots are found in our text today, uh, in Isaiah 44. To continue to give some more context, the original audience from this text would be Jews in Babylon, sometime between 586 and 516 B.C. And these were people who had faced a 9-11 level invasion from the people of Babylon. But instead of Israel then responding and going into Babylon to attack them, Babylon totally destroys Judah and Jerusalem, ransacks the city and brings them back to Babylon. And so this message of comfort was given to these exiles who are in a foreign land and they're in desperate need of comfort. So our purpose in studying this text today is to see the comforting characteristics and traits of God that transcend history into our lives today. And by the way, this is why it's important to read the Old Testament. Most of why we know what we know about God, we get from the Old Testament. You know, uh, there are people who say, hey, New Testament believers, just read the New Testament. Uh, I totally disagree with that. <laughs> if you want to know God and who he is, the Old Testament is an amazing place to study. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at today is why should I trust in the Lord? Why should I not fear? And so, beginning in verse 1, let's uh, let's jump in. But now, listen, O Jacob, my servant, in Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord, who made you, informed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. So we begin this section... Uh, with who is God addressing these promises to? You know, So we're about to look at a bunch of reasons why God is trustworthy and a bunch of promises. So who is this written to? It's to Israel and to Jacob. And he also calls them Jeshurun, which is to say upright ones. Okay. You're my upright ones, people that I have chosen. And, uh, this is primarily, uh, addressed to Israel. Therefore we'll see some blessings in this passage that are exclusive to Israel as a nation. Uh, but we ought to learn to praise God for his goodness to Israel. Uh, it, it can become really easy to look at passages like this and go, well, this isn't about me. <laughs> and, uh, but let me tell you, uh, In the future, when Christ reigns on the throne in the millennial kingdom, we will be singing God's praises for his kindness to Israel and his kindness to them. And so we ought to be excited for the the nation of Israel and what God is doing there uh, and what he will do for them. A pastor friend who I really admire uh, always says that it's good for us to learn that life is not about us, that the Christian life is not primarily about you, Uh, your relationships. Are not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Uh, Your circumstances are not about you. The Christian life is not intended to just be about you. And so it's good for us to uh, it's good for us to acknowledge that. And life is about bringing God as much glory as we can with the life that He has given us. So we jump back into forty four verse one through two. We see that these blessings are primarily going to be given to Israel. But uh, notice. Verse 1, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Then you have at the end of verse 2, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. God loves and he loves to bless his children, the ones that he has chosen. And we even see that for us in our lives uh, as Christians. We're all familiar with Ephesians 1 where it says that God chose you, believer, before the foundations of the world. And he has richly blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In Christ Jesus. And so God is a God who loves to bless his children, those whom he has chosen. So now that we've seen who this is primarily addressed to, it's addressed to his chosen people, Israel. Uh, But we see here that God loves those whom he has chosen. So our first point we see is God restores. God restores. So fear not, because God restores. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So first we see that God restores and is going to restore physically. Uh, Here he's speaking of a future promise that he will pour out water on a dry and thirsty land. Uh, A few years ago, I went with uh, Ethan Herrings. Many of you know Ethan. And uh, he and I went out to Utah to the Bonneville Salt Flats. And uh, if you know anything about the Bonneville Salt Flats, uh, it uh, it is totally flat. And it is totally dry as far as you can see. And that's where uh, cars and motorcycles will go out to set land speed records. And so hundreds of our land speed records have been set out at the Bonneville Salt Flats. Because there are no plants. <laughs> you're not going to trip up on a route. Uh, you're not going to run into anything. You just go as far as you can, as fast as you can. And it is totally dry and desolate. And here, uh, the imagery that God uses is that he's going to take land like the Bonneville salt flats, and he's going to pour forth water on it, and he's going to restore it, and he's going to make it right and make it the way that it should be. And so he promises to pour out water on the thirsty land. Uh, we see in Romans 8, 19 through 23, that all creation groans for that day. Yeah, I'm just going to turn there really quick. Uh, you can keep your, keep your spot there. I'll just read this. Uh, Romans 8, 19 through, through 23, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly, For the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan in ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Anybody else's body's groaning today? <laughs> you're looking at me like, you're 25. You shouldn't have a groaning body. <laughs> uh, I I just had, uh, I actually just had a nine-year-old ask me this last week. It's like, can you dunk? I don't even want to know because it just hurts to jump now. <laughs> and, uh, and, but all creation and including our bodies long for that day where God is going to physically restore all things to the way that they're supposed to be and uh, the way that they're intended to be. Uh, I know that I do not have a glorified body right now. (laughs) Uh, And young people, as you get older, uh, promises like this become more and more precious. Uh, As you as you grow older, uh, you really do long for the day that God is going to restore all things and make all things right. And uh, However, God's restoration extends beyond physical restoration. God makes dry lands fruitful, and God takes spiritually dead people and makes them alive. So we come back to our passage here, uh, verse 3, the second part. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He uses the same language to communicate What he's going to do with water on the land, with the spirit on his people. That here are people who are dry and thirsty that he's going to pour out his spirit on and rescue. God restores spiritually. Uh, I believe that this specific pouring out of his spirit on Israel has yet to occur. Uh, This is a future event uh, that will occur in the millennial kingdom uh, during uh, during the tribulation. And uh, it will occur at the time that creation is restored. So it's going to happen at the same time. God is going to pour out his children on, sorry, is going to pour out his spirit on the children of Israel. And they're going to be like the man in Psalm 1. We see that here. Uh, And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Uh, He uses the illustration of you've got grass, you've got a beautiful river, and there's a tree. That is planted, you know, really similar language to Psalm 1. You know, here is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and he will be like a tree planted by water, and which bears fruit. And this is what the people will be like. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> that God is going to take a land that is dry and a people that are dead and make them alive. Wow. (laughs) That is, that is going to be amazing. Uh, we go on and it says in verse five, uh, one will say, I'm the Lord's. And that same one will also say, I am Jacob. And then it says, one will have on his hand saying belonging to the Lord. And they'll also say, I'm an Israelite. Uh, what Isaiah is saying here, uh, is that there will be a day where being an Israelite and belonging to the Lord are going to mean the same thing. That there's not going to be people who are God's chosen people but aren't redeemed. There's going to be one and the same. Uh, they're going to they're going to belong to the Lord. So this future hope should lead to a changed life uh although we are not going to have this specific promise fulfilled in us we already experience many of similar blessings like his spirit but we're also going to be there millennial kingdom praise the lord (laughs) that is gonna be awesome and that future hope really should affect our lives now uh they've done a survey to see what day of the week workers are most happy and uh it's pretty easy to guess it's friday (laughs) uh not Monday, and uh, not Tuesday or Wednesday, but it's Friday. And why is that? Well, we have the weekend to look forward to, right? And they're showing that, you know, as you go into work on Friday, which many people are working from home now, but uh, for the few of you who still work uh, where you work, uh, on Friday, man, it's a lot easier to be patient and kind of people, <laughs> Hey, I'm going home this weekend. You know, I'm, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to go eat out with my family. I'm going to go do all these fun things. And it's so much easier to be patient and kind and understanding on Friday. Why? Because we have something that we're looking forward to. Similarly, as Christians, we should be the most joyful people, not only because what God has done for us now but the future hope that we have. I got to get moving here. God restores, but we also see that God reigns. So, God restores, God reigns. Uh, first, we see that God reigns over nations. Uh, the book of Isaiah is sort of an emotional roller coaster. It's like judgment, salvation, judgment, <laughs> salvation. And it is kind of okay. But we see through Isaiah, most of God's chastising, most of his discipline comes at the hand of other nations. You know, we see. Uh, in chapter 28 of Isaiah that Assyria is going to capture Israel. Uh, We see that in chapter 39 that Babylon would capture Judah. We see through the judges earlier in history that God used the Philistines over and over to bring his people back to him. But these two nations, specifically Babylon and Assyria, they were serving the Lord and his purposes. And it was not God making just the best of a bad situation. God was using these nations to accomplish His will, and that did not end at the end of Isaiah. God still is the one who reigns over nations. Uh, it can we can look at the world today, and we can even look at uh, things that are going on right now. We can look at our own country and say, "What is going on?" <laughs> but God reigns, and. How often do we act like God is not reigning over these situations? We serve the God who reigns. But we see more specifically, actually, before I jump to that, uh, at the end of this chapter, we're not going to get to this. But God then uses Cyrus, who is uh, one of the kings of, he's the king of Persia, to set his people free. He says, Cyrus is my shepherd. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going to read it really quick. <laughs> 40, uh, if you look at the end of 44, uh, verse 28, I have the Sunday school hour, too, so I can do this. Uh, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Which, by the way, Cyrus is not even a twinkle in his father's eye yet. <laughs> uh, Cyrus is still is not going to be born for a hundred years, and God names him by name. That is amazing. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him. So that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places. So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name, Cyrus. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. God's purpose in nations is so that we would know that there is no other God, that he is the one that is totally in control. And we see that here in Isaiah. Uh, But we also see that God reigns over his people, uh, the nation of Israel. We see verse six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Uh, If you want to make God your king, Uh, It might be good to know what he is like to the people he already rules over. (laughs) What kind of king is he? Uh, We see here, thus says the Lord. This uh, Lord, if you have it in your Bible there, uh, it's going to be in all caps. Uh, This is capital L-O-R-D, which would be the personal name, name of God, Yahweh, the great I Am. The self-existent one, the name that he revealed to Moses, uh, the great I am. Okay? He is self-existent. Uh, there was no God before him. We also see, once again, he's the king of Israel. God is the one who reigns over Israel, so he has the authority to command customs, laws, laws regulations, give direction to the nation. But this also means that he's responsible for the nation. We also see the king of Israel and his, Israel's, redeemer. Uh, This word redeemer to this people at this time would actually bring to mind something very normal to them. Uh, You know, when we talk about adoption, we're really familiar with that. Okay, it's a, you know, parents uh, making a child their own as if they're their own biological child. Here, a redeemer was a near relative who would take on the responsibility of someone in their family, whether near or extended, uh, and they would pay off all of their debt and then would take care of them. And they were responsible for keeping the interest of the person they've redeemed. Uh, think of Boaz from the book of Ruth, Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And remember, there was uh, he was not the first in line. He goes to the gate, and uh, there's a man there who is actually the one who should be redeeming Ruth. And he says, hey, are you going to redeem Ruth? And he goes, that's a lot of work. I have children that I want to have, and I have a, I have stuff that I want to do. And so Boaz then becomes Ruth Kinsman Redeemer. This is what God calls himself to his people, that he's the one who looks out for their best interest. He's the one that's redeemed. Then we see uh, he is the Lord of hosts, or you might have in your translation might say... Uh, Lord of armies, or Almighty God. This is the God who commands at his will uh, armies. Verse uh, Isaiah 37, this is amazing. So this is during the reign of Hezekiah, and uh, this is the Lord of hosts doing what he does best. Verse 32. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant and out of Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege camp against it or siege ramp against it by the way that he came by the same way he will return and he will not come to the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake, check this out. Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. (laughs) You wake up in the morning, 185,000 dead people. (laughs) Wow, that is the Lord of hosts. That is, he's the king of armies. And this is the king of Israel. And it is really, uh, it is really amazing to see how God has revealed this. Uh, As the Lord of hosts, our God is able to accomplish his will for us. He fights on our behalf. It's interesting, without any, any one of these individual characteristics, we do have reason to fear, to be afraid. He, if he is not the self-existent one, who does he answer to? If he is not the king of Israel, then whose king is he? Is he someone else's king? Does he belong to some other religion or nation? If he is not our redeemer, he does not have our best interest in mind. If he is not the Lord of hosts, He does not have the power to protect us from the evils that we face, but he is all of these things. He is the self-existent one who answers to no other God. He is the rightful ruler of Israel who reigns over his chosen people. He is the redeemer whose aim is what is best for his people. And he is the Lord of hosts, the almighty God who defends us. Praise the Lord. And we can trust him with what he is doing with nations. He reigns over over Israel and he reigns over all the nations of the world, including ours. Uh, Believe it or not, he still reigns. (laughs) We also see he reigns Over history. Uh, Jumping back to our passage, uh, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. This is a good proof text if you're ever talking to someone who believes in multiple gods. Uh, Mormons would believe that there are multiple gods, there are many gods. And here, God specifically says, There's no God beside me. I am the first and I am the last. He's the only God. And so, He issues a challenge Who is like me? Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. God offers a challenge. He tells the people to have their gods lay out from beginning to end all of the things that he has done and all the things that are going to happen in the future. Uh, as God challenged these idols to lay these things out, the very text that these people were reading was written a hundred years ago. <laughs> like the they're here and it was written there. This text that they're reading is living proof that their God does know the future. You know, it would be like you and I sitting here and you've got a note from your great, great, great grandpa. And it says, all right, on September 12th, the day after uh, Iowa beats Iowa State <laughs> uh, after that. Uh, on, in 2021, when Willie Felderman, believe it or not, is, is preaching in Sheraton, you will be wearing a white shirt with a slightly wrinkly blue spotted tie. And, uh, you would look at that and go, whoa, (laughs) grandpa, why didn't you tell me that we were going to lose yesterday? (laughs) I wouldn't have gone, you know, sorry, Cole. And, uh, um, that would be amazing. And that's essentially what has happened here is that as God issues this challenge, as they're reading it, he has already met this. He already has met the criteria to be God. And this is uh, this is where we run into a lot of trouble. Their idols fall short of this test because they are not God. Uh, How often do we ask things or people that are not God to do things that only God can do? You won't find ultimate joy and satisfaction in the buying of things. You won't find ultimate joy and satisfaction in your happy marriage or in your children's success. No wonder we get so frustrated. Uh, We are asking our spouse or our children or sports or our job, whatever it is, we're asking it to do what only God can do. And they're going to fall short. But praise God, he doesn't leave it at that. And actually, the people, uh, God God assumes that the response is fear because their idols have fallen short. The pe- the things that they have made first in their lives have fallen short. But God reassures them, and we see our second fear not in this passage. Verse 8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. <laughs> you know, you've got this right here in front of you. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Isaiah then here in the following section takes a quick detour uh, to take a look at idolatry. And uh, he compares, he does this to compare the character of God uh, to the foolishness of idols. And so we'll, I'll move through this quickly, but uh, just make a couple of main points here. Verses nine through eleven, we see that idols, things that are not God, that we ask to be to do things that only God can do, shame and disappoint. Verses, ver, sorry, verse nine. Those who fashion a graven image after me, sorry, uh, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. You could underline that. And their precious things are of no profit. Underline that. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. Notice several words: uh, futile, no prophet, put to shame. These idols cannot do these things because they are not God. And it says here that these are made by man. And so, man, man's problems cannot be solved by other men. Uh, it's only God. Uh, secondly, we see uh, the I- idols are worthless, uh, or. We see they're worthless. Uh, secondly, sorry, we see that it's exhausting. Uh, verse 12: The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with his strong arm. He also gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. We see that even the strong man, as he is building his idol, grows tired and grows weary. And although we don't make – we don't really struggle with this type of idolatry, but we do struggle with idolatry, those idols that we have in our lives can be exhausting to maintain. It can be exhausting to maintain your child's success, to put that on your shoulders, you know, that, hey, that's where I'm going to find my satisfaction in my children. That's going to be exhausting. Uh, you find your success in people liking you at school, you know, being popular. Uh, that's going to be exhausting to maintain that. Uh, even a strong man will be exhausted by that uh, because they require strength to, they require re- strength to be built. Built, but they provide no renewal. Uh, note the contrast. I'll turn there really quick. In Isaiah 40, uh, 40 verses 20 and 31. Idols are exhausting. Here's God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Notice the big difference between the exhausting idols and the God who renews your strength. Finally, with the idols, we see that they are really foolish, <laughs> foolish, uh, and they blind. Uh, and I'll just summarize it here. Uh, the idols are trees that these guys planted. The rain comes down. They chop down the tree, they use it for firewood, they use it to make their food. And the same thing that they use to make these, do these mundane tasks in normal life, they then carve into their own image and ask it to save them. <laughs> what? What? You know, we look at that like, that's so, that's so dumb. (laughs) You know, don't you see, you know, you're bowing to your oven. (laughs) You're bowing to your chair. You know, that is so foolish, but idols blind. And it is so true that when you're wrapped up in the thing that you want to bring you happiness and satisfaction, it's hard to see it. It's hard to say, oh, I am blind. And that's why it's so important that we're in the Word of God. That's why it's so important that we have each other here at church uh, to help us to see uh, when we are blind to those idols. So the reason why the text diverts to the folly of idols is because God wants his people to see the difference, the stark contrast between the Lord, the King of Israel, the Redeemer, and the Lord of hosts, the first and the last. He is over and against these idols made by human hands. So finally... I'll probably say finally 10 more times, (laughs) God redeems. So we've got God restores, God reigns, God redeems. Starting in verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And in Israel, he shows forth his glory. We see in God's redemption, he is just. We see uh, that Israel in their sin, verse 22, uh, has a thick cloud or a mist. You know, there's some mornings as you're driving through the countryside, uh, through the hills, You'll go down into a cloud of mist. I can't see a thing. <laughs> and uh, hopefully the other guy's not in my lane. And uh, as they're coming, that's pretty scary. You can't see anything. and But imagine, you know, and you can't communicate with anybody coming this way. My blinkers don't work. Uh, there's no communication <laughs> between me and the person on the other side of this mist. And God is saying here that their sin was before him and before them like a mist in a cloud that obscures vision. There's broken fellowship. Because of this sin, uh, there's broken fellowship between his people and him. Likewise, we today, apart from God, there is, there is a mist. There is broken fellowship that we are disconnected from the Lord. Uh, if you have not, if you've never put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is where you're at now. There's broken fellowship between you and God. And you uh, cannot talk to him. Uh, your sins stand before Him, but He says here, "I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist." So to God, uh, so for us, it totally blinds. But to God, He just <laughs> I can I can see now. <laughs> I, I can this fellowship is restored because God has done it. So we see God is just, and we see that God alone accomplished redemption. God alone accomplished redemption for His people. Uh, he says. I have redeemed you, so return to me. I have redeemed you. Uh, we know that ultimately the way that God paid the price for our sins was Christ's death on the cross. It was not by anything that we have done. You know, Titus 3 says it really, really well. While we ourselves were foolish and disobedient, passing our days in envy and malice, hating one another, uh, it literally communicates we, like, passed our days. You know, we passed our day, our days playing games or spending time with people. You know, Paul says we pass our days by hating each other. (laughs) And but then it says, but God, when the loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he redeemed us, not because of works of righteousness done by us, but because of his own love. Wow. God alone is the one who accomplishes this accomplishes our redemption very last point verse 23 we see that this redemption is not primarily about us it's not primarily about making us happy it's not primarily about bringing joy to us although it does it is primarily for the glory of god it is for his glory verse 23 shout for joy O heavens for the lord has done it shout joyfully you lower parts of the earth break forth into a shout of joy you mountains of forest And every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. God in his redemption of his people Israel, the intended purpose was to bring him glory. I mentioned earlier Ephesians 1, where it says, God has chosen us before the foundations of the world and has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Three or four times in that passage, it says all of these blessings are for the praise of his glory. It's all about him. Our redemption is not about us, it's all about him to glorify him. So we see uh, that we are called not to be redeemed just to live for ourselves, but to live for the one who tells us not to fear, but to turn to him, the one who restores, who reigns and redeems. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to us. You are the self-existent one. You are the king of Israel and you're our king. Lord, You're our Redeemer, and you are the Lord of hosts, and Lord, we praise you today. God, help us. Uh, There are many times that we're faced with fears and struggles and anxieties, and we often want to turn to these things that are not God to do what only you can do. So Lord, give us the faith to believe in you, and the faith to trust you, and God, help us in our affections, not just to give mental assent that these facts are true, but that these would be things that would stir our affections, that would cause us to live. God, thank you for saving us from our Sins, for wiping out our transgressions and inviting us to fellowship. Thank you, best on Jesus'.